Hello and welcome. My name is Assad. My name is Jamie. We're two surgical trainees in the north of England, and this is the podcast that aims to dissect, to probe, to anatomize, and analyze what it is to be a surgical trainee. Welcome to It's Always Sunny in Surgery. Today, we're talking about how to make the most out of training. Um, and I know in the last episode, we had Mr. Forsyth come on and talk a lot about how he made the most out of training, and how he uh, valued staying positive throughout and how it really benefited him in his whole training career. So in this episode, I think it, it's, it is a really good opportunity as a core trainee, to ask you, Assad, how you navigate the world of surgical training, which, as we both know, is is challenging at times. I mean, I think um, it's, it, it's, it's a great idea because there are lots of little uh, kernels of wisdom I've scooped up along the way. And exactly, sometimes yeah. you pick them up when it's too late and you're like, oh, if only I'd known this earlier. And um, no, it, it's free knowledge. I'm happy to, to dispense it. And there are lots of ways you can tweak or enhance your training without being some sort of autist surgical robot or sociopath. <laughs> so that's my mission to you. At least try not to appear like that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You can be a normal human being and an efficient surgical trainee and not like not a dick to other people. Like that that is that is doable. That's compatible. So that's my that's my mission for today then. No sharpening your elbows then. No, no, I don't think you need to, actually. You can just be savvy with it. But uh, we'll come on to that, because that the, that's the crux of this episode. How to be a surgical trainee with blunt elbows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just average elbows, just average elbows. And a, and a keen eye and a keen interest and a can-do chipper attitude. Let, let's start then. Let, let, let's uh, start out with a question. Yeah. What is it that you think is uh, the most important attribute of a, of a surgical training? Uh, perseverance, 100%. Like surgery, it, in my mind, is almost like marine selection. And it's just this six, seven year period of hell where you're just going to get beasted on a weekly basis. And the beastings don't get any less. They probably get more severe, but your ability to tolerate them or perform kind of just rises in line and the the thing with it is is that you're always going to hit roadblocks you're always going to hit hurdles and obstacles and things you can't get straight away and that's natural and and that's kind of the point of training like no one's a finished article that's why it's training it's not that they select people who are ready to be surgeons and go off you go here's a consultant post it's like a Mr Miyagi like process and I don't know if you've ever seen the Karate Kid but Mr. Miyagi doesn't let up on Daniel-san. Like, he's, he makes him wash the car, he makes him paint the fences. And then right at the bit when Daniel-san loses his temper, he's like, what's the point of this? That's when he realises, oh, my God, you've turned me into, like, a martial arts, you know, expert without me even realising. 
And that's kind of the point of training. If, if Daniel San had quit after the fourth time the Aggies made him varnish his fences, he'd be nowhere. He would never win the karate contest. So I, I think perseverance is number one and it's the top. You just don't get dissuaded. Second to that is kind of endurance. I would probably say that perseverance is, you know, keeping at it, keeping at it, keeping at it. And then endurance kind of slightly different. It's just that you need the kind of stamina to keep going because it is a long training pathway. Uh, and I think the two go hand in hand. So do you think that part of surgical training, this thing that people talk about, the hidden curriculum, they're, they're almost trying to teach you these attributes or instill them in you. Uh, you know, like your karate kid. I haven't seen that film, but you know, getting you to wash the car and do things which you might not think are valuable to your training are actually giving you the attributes that are valuable. So if you haven't watched it, um, you can get a bit of a rundown if you watch Cobra Kai. That's on Netflix. That's basically like... <laughs> that's the and the whole reason it exists... Sorry, this is a massive detail, but I think that's what we're talking about. Cobra Kai exists because the original Cry Kid films invoke such a, like a cult following that they just got the, the actors who were children at the time to remake the entire series now that daniel San is a successful entrepreneur and the Cobra Kai, his villains have been vanquished. Um, and But in actual relevance and answer to your question, the answer is yes and no. There is, I mean, there is a lot of service provision and there's a lot of donkey work that you can end up doing. Some of it is actually useful and some of it is not useful. And you may not understand the relevance of some of it, but that doesn't mean that all of it that you made to do is actually useful. Some of it you just have to kind of grin and bear. It goes back to the kind of like Marine thing whereby is is drill, is marching in formation that important for a Royal Marines commando? I mean, I'm not a Royal Marines commando, but marching around on a square is probably less relevant done this is a weapon this is how you load a weapon this is how you shoot and kill the thing that you want to and maybe that's kind of the the same like there'll be stuff in surgery that we're asked to do because we're asked to do it but there will also be some kernels of wisdom that are shaping you in miyagi-like forces okay well take take for example something that is useful that most people regard as as probably the most useful part of surgical training which is theater time yeah. Um, how, how do you make the most out of theatre time? Because you can, you know, go to theatre and, and do very little, learn very little. You know, it's, it's it's very much up to you, I think. That is probably the biggest question, and it's also this this the biggest answer I can give. So my, I suppose my number one top tip would be: what you need to know is you need to know the procedure that you're doing, and obviously you're a trainee, so you don't need to know necessarily how to do it, but like the key steps. So the best way that you're going to get to do that is don't buy it, but go to the hospital library, get an operative textbook. Now, one that's pretty good for most surgical specialties is this one called Kirk's Operative Atlas. And Kirk, whoever he was, good lad, he made an atlas of common, common, mostly general surgery, but other sort of specialty procedures. And in there is just text like, this is what you're trying to do. This is how you get at the thing. This step is going to happen. This step is going to happen. Then this step is going to happen. And it just gives you an outline of the whole operation. We work in a time where surgery is probably past the golden age. So most people are going to follow these set texts and these set methods. They're going to adhere to them pretty rigidly. Um, There'll be variations on the theme, but it's unlikely 
that in your training, you, you're going to come across some sort of surgical pioneer. It just doesn't happen that often. So these texts will hold you in good stead. And don't read the whole thing cover to cover. Just read the bit on the operation that you think is going to come up or operations that you commonly see. So that's the first thing. Next, number two, you've got to know your patient that, that's on the table. So you don't need to know like an intimate history of them, but you know you need to know their relevant medical conditions, relevant medication that they're on, rough idea of the blood tests, any major allergies or previous surgeries, previous scars. Anything's going to be a hiccup or is going to present a challenge intraoperatively. And that's because when you know all this stuff, what it allows you to do is kind of contextualize the textbook knowledge that you have of the procedure for that individual patient. So, for example, you're going to do a lap appendectomy, but this guy has already had a laparotomy for pyloric stenosis as an infant. Well, what that might twig you towards thinking is mm, maybe a lap appendix is going to be quite challenging because the adhesions might have to either recite the ports or there'll be a low threshold for conversion to open. That's where knowing your patient, knowing the background, knowing the history kind of makes that a bit more apparent. So tip number three, know your anatomy. And I'm not saying that you have to be a spanner and you have to regurgitate all these lovely anatomical facts about the course and origin and insertion of every muscle, tendon, artery and whatnot. That's not what I'm saying. You've got to know your applied anatomy. And I think the best place that you can pick relevant anatomy up from are the atlases of surgical operations because they will tell you about the landmarks and the constants that you need to know. They usually make reference to it. And the reason why it's so key and important is that whenever you need to get somewhere in today's world, you've got sat-nav, you've got Google Maps, you've got Waze, whatever you need to to get around. But in surgery, we don't have that yet. So you need to look out for certain landmarks that you can use as reference points that triangulate where you need to be if you don't know them then you'll just be going around in circles you won't get much out of it and before you know it you know your boss will take over and that's your time to play over and done with so knowing your patient knowing your operation can can help but sometimes it's very difficult especially as like a junior trainee when you're um just assisting in these operations we 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 all know that actually you know participating in the operation practicing your skills yeah is one of the most valuable parts of of joining theater um how can you make the most of when you're not when you're when you're just second or third assistant well i'm not out of tricks yet because like there's a few more things you can do so okay, sorry. Um, no no it's all right so once you know the steps and you know the patient i mean i said textbooks actually i forgot that um, touch surgery is pretty good. I mean, it's a free app you can download from the. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I've, I've used that myself, and it's um, it's it's a useful resource. It's pretty it's good. Certainly... It's good. I won't lie to you. Touch surgery is very good, um, and it's very good because the text will either give you still photos or diagrams, and touch surgery is a little bit more interactive. Um, so definitely, like, and it's free as well. So you know, it's a very useful resource when you're getting familiar with procedures, and it can give you very high level knowledge pretty quick. So once you know your procedure, know your patient, know your anatomy. We'll kind of come on to assisting a little bit later because that's a slightly different mindset. Um, Because if you're going to get the most out of theatre, you've got to be a little bit tenacious and there is negotiations that need to take place, but we'll come on to that. So 
know your steps of the procedure, know your patient, know your anatomy. Then you kind of need to know your logbook a little bit, not in explicit detail, but whenever it comes chance for you to fly solo or do a procedure, the first que- what's the first question they're going to ask you? Have you done this before? Yeah. And you don't always have to say, yes, I've done the whole thing, but you need to know how many times you've done it. It shows that you're thinking and that you're participating and keen and eager. And obviously, there'll, there'll always be a point where that, that time is zero. Um, we'll come on to that in a minute. But if it's been more than zero and you've done steps of different things, then, then you can at least quantify that. And that's, that's what's reassured trainers. Okay. Yeah. Tip number four, probably the most important, right, is you've got to negotiate early. Okay. So whenever you want to do a procedure, which is probably all the time, don't ask at the time of the operation midway through. Okay, there's like 30 minutes of dead time where the patient's being anesthetized. Your boss will bugger off to their office and start doing clinic letters. You might be with a reg who's just sat there spinning around in a swivel chair. That's when you ask. You ask before the patient is on the table. You get almost like a verbal contract. With the negotiation, you've, you've got to be sensible. So if it's like a lap appendix and you've never done any, you're probably not going to get to do the whole lap appendix. But you can be like, look, can you show me how to put the ports in? That is not an unrealistic expectation. Now, you're much more likely to get given something to do if you ask before the procedure has even begun. Because if they say, no, you can't put the ports in, then you can be like, well, there's got to be something I can do. And then that's when the negotiation begins. The negotiation can be with the primary surgeon. But if you're, if you're an assistant and there's like you, a reg and a consultant, you can negotiate with the regs as well. So my top tip for people who are core trainees gravitate towards senior regs if you've got someone who's st6 st7 start sniffing around them because there'll be a lot that they're comfortable doing they're getting towards the end of training and they want to kind of make the transition into consultant i and or trainer uh, someone's post frcs that's perfection like they're the kind of people who are indifferent to doing gallbladders or hernias or they're like yeah whatever um, I'll teach you. It's more fulfilling for me at this point to kind of teach you how to do it. So you may as well do it. Whereas if you pick junior reg that you're with, then junior regs have got to learn and they have unfortunately a little bit higher up the pecking order. So their learning needs trump yours. But negotiating, that is key. Don't just do it on the table at that time. Say you're, you've never done the procedure before. Yeah. Is it still okay to you know, try and negotiate if, if, if you ask them to show you how to do that, that sort of implies, show you how to do an operation that implies that they're just going to show you, they're not actually going to get you to do it. Well, so this goes back to step number one, the most important thing, know your operation. So if let's say, let's take a lap appendix. You're doing a lap appendix. You've never done one before. Okay. Then you're going to say, I've not done this step before, but uh, I know that you need to sight in a 10 millimeter umbilical port, five millimeter left elevator fossa port, and then what's the other one? Um, a five millimeter superpubic port and watch out for the inferior epigastrics. So I understand the principles. Could you take five extra minutes and show me how to do it? That is a perfectly valid request. And so now that you're proving to them that you know what you're, you're doing. Exactly. You just haven't had the experience. Yet, yeah. That's exactly it. You don't have the experience, but you have the book knowledge. You understand what you're meant to be doing where you're going to do it and that's that and then you know that shows to me 
that you're not kind of clueless. You're going, well, I understand what I'm meant to do, but I don't know how I'm meant to do it. Can you show me how I'm meant to apply my theoretical knowledge? And I'll go, yeah, let's do it. The other thing, and I think this is, I don't know, we're on tip number six now. This is really important, right? So surgeries typically are broken into three stages. Okay, so there's the access to the thing that you want to get at. That's step number one. Step number two is operating on the thing that you spent the past hour getting at. That's step number two. And step number three is closure. Okay, so realistically, when you're a junior, and even as a reg, you're going to have to break those down into steps. Okay, now, by default, the easiest thing to do is step number three, closure, because you've got at the thing, you've dealt with the thing, and you just need to close it, right? So the hard work is kind of over, people are kind of relaxing, right? So if you've never done a procedure before and you have no experience in doing that procedure, ask to do the closure first because that's the thing that causes surgeons least anxiety because the hard bit's done. And they will more than likely show you, if you ask to do step number two, which is the operation itself and you've never done it before, that's going to be an outright no because that's the fiddly bit, the tricky bit. And the same with the access the access needs you to understand your surgical landmarks, your kind of navigation, your routes. So when it comes to doing operations, what I would say is start with step number three, get good at doing step number three, which is the closure. Right? When you've got the closure down, you can say to people, I can close this operation, and I've done this six, seven times, knowing your logbook. Then you can use that as leverage to do step number one, which is the access to the thing. So, and then you do that six, seven times. Then you can say, I've done this 14 times. I've closed, I've closed 14 times and I've inserted the port seven times. Can you now show me how to do the bit in the middle? And that's how you leverage your way, like you crowbar your way into doing the whole operation. Yeah. See what I mean? So you, you, first you show them you've got the knowledge. You then acquire the sort of basic skills of the operation. And then you show them that you've got, once you've got the basic skills and the experience of seeing the operation and participating in the more simple parts of it, that's when you move on to the the full. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and for me, that'd be the order I'd do it in. Do the closure, which is the bit that everyone kind of gets given, which people feel are the scraps. And in some ways they kind of are, but that that is the most relaxed bit of the operation. And that's the bit that people, for the most part, are probably the least worried about. So once you've done the end, you then do the beginning. And once you've done enough of the end, enough of the beginning, it, you can then leverage your way into doing the bit in the middle. Because then you've done the start and the finish. You just want the, the juicy middle section. I mean, there are also other parts of operating, not just the actual open, you know, um, knife to skin to, to, to closing up. Um, there are things like team briefs and operation notes and things. You know, is there a way of demonstrating to your seniors and your your supervisors that you you understand the operation? You 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 know, sort of building that trust with them through participating in those activities. hundred uh, percent. That definitely is part of it. So I was going to kind of save this for a bit later, but it doesn't matter if it's come up now. So we'll just talk about it now. But those those things are absolutely vital. So team briefs. I would say that what you want to do, if you're being involved in a procedure and you roughly understand the procedure, okay, ask someone to do the team brief. It shows initiative on your part. It shows leadership on your part. And it's a pretty comprehensive understanding because the team brief is not just 
the operative steps. It's like the wider patient management type thing. It's like, what are the patient challenges? Do we have the equipment available? Do the theatre staff need to go get additional equipment? Are you likely to run into trouble either because the the operation is tricky or the patient is tricky? If so, what steps are you going to do? Uh, What steps are you going to run into problem with? Um, What do you want them to have to hand? Letting your anaesthetist know. And basically, if you understand that level of everything, then it says to your bosses, your trainers, that, you know, this guy's poor girl. It's pretty switched on and they get it, like they understand it. Mm. So I would say the team brief is a really, really good thing to do. Furthermore, you don't have to be doing the team brief on your own. There were times when I was doing team briefs for fairly complex things. And I'd say to the consultant, like, I'm going to do the team brief. But if I make a gaffe, will you just correct me? And he was like, yeah, that's fine. Um, I'll just stand in the crowd. You go to the whiteboard, you write the things on that you want to write, and you talk to everyone and you do all that sort of stuff. If I disagree with what you've said, then I will say, actually, I want this equipment or this thing instead. So that that it, it's a good way of, of, of asserting yourself because the thing about surgery is at some point, you have to make a decision. You have to demonstrate leadership because you're going to you're going to lead that operation. So getting used to that early is um, is is important. Also, you know, you talk about sort of demonstrating leadership and, and competence. Um, certainly, probably one of the easiest ways I found, especially in my early days as a core trainee, was um, you know elective lists, getting there early. Um, getting the con- patients consented and marked and, and doing their VTs and all that sort of stuff. If, how would you suggest, you know, if you, especially if you're starting an elective list, you've been assigned to a consultant for the day, what are the sort of things that you can do to, to, to start the day off well? Uh, that is, that's a really good question. Because I think I didn't really understand what to do in an elective list until um, – I was halfway through CC2 and then so, so one of the sort of senior regs was sick of me fumbling around was like, listen, they took pity, me up, pity on me and said, listen, this is, this is the way you're meant to do it. And then I just had this sort of a light bulb moment where I thought, I, I just, I wish someone could have explained this to me way back when. And at no point during core teaching does anyone tell you, no one tells you in the start of CT1 or the DDM induction, they just assume you'll pick it up and I don't know, maybe I'm stupid than the average person, but I didn't pick it up until nearly the end. So there's there's different sort of timeframes. I think if you are on a regular list and a regular spot with a regular person, okay, the best thing that I think you can do is you can get a copy of the elective list emailed to you. So um, if you know this surgeon that you're going to be operating with, just get their secretary to email your list uh, of that. So I'd probably say, let's assume that you do that. That's fine. If you don't, I'd get there in the morning. And the first thing you should have a look at is have a look at who your patients are and what the planned procedures are, just so you have a rough idea of what's going to, going to happen. Okay. The next thing that you're going to do is probably get a copy of the listing letter or clinic letter. And that's because... Um, the last consultant letter will say, I've discussed blah, 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 blah with the procedure, uh, with them, I've explained these risks, I am listing them for. And that's your kind of first bit of evidence that will show you that the procedure they've been listed for is correct. 
So there's sort of congruence between the two. The next thing is the radiology. So not everyone will have done, but some people will have had scans and things like that done. So I would probably check that, have a look at that, and then um, that gives you another layer of, of kind of confirmation. So you've, you've seen the clinic layer, you've seen the scan. And then the last thing is just check your bloods, check your allergies, check your meds, make sure that stuff's all right. And there's no, you know, they don't have potassium of eight or, you know, a HB of 74 or whatever. And they don't, they're not allergic to the antibiotic that you want to give. Um, and then just examine quickly so that you've got kind of a holy trinity. You've got a listing letter that outlines the procedure they're meant to have. You've got radiology that identifies the pathology that you're going to plan to treat. And then the patient's got signs that kind of fit together with all of that. And then you can kind of consent them. So, yeah, essentially you're, as a core trainee, demonstrating that you're, you know, you know, working towards being do, doing what a reg does because that is essentially the, the, the point of core training is working towards that that stage. Um, yeah. we, we talked about theatre um, quite a lot, and, and how would you suggest, uh, you know, as a core trainee, um, sort of strategies for for making the most out of clinic time? The first thing about clinic is you could almost argue that the decisions that you make in clinic are not dissimilar to what you would do when you're on call. The first thing you should always, always, always do is always pick up new patients. Do not get follow-ups. Do not get post-ops. Do not get whatever, because the learning opportunity for you there is kind of less so. And if there is a learning opportunity, it's usually a bit more complex. New patients, it's, picking them up is very much like being on call and seeing a new referral. So, and I would say just take the same general approach to that that you would, uh, but you can do it in a more you know, relaxed setting. You're not in an A&E cubicle. See and examine, and then you present it to your boss um, and give them a management plan of what you would do. And then ask them to critique you. Do they agree? Do they disagree? What points would they tweak? And then you can use that as bartering for a WBA. And and that's what we do as regs. Although to be honest, when you when you're a reg and you're more senior, <laughs> the consultant will like dump half the clinic on you and be like, off your trot, and you're like, fine, okay. But that is that's what you're aiming to to get towards. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean I do I do actually really enjoy clinic. Um because it's much more relaxed a learning environment than other environments like theatre and things like that, because you are very much supernumerian and it's it's uh, you can take your time to actually discuss cases and uh, find out different uh, learning gaps you might have. takes us on really onto the next environment which i think a lot of trainees 
um, don't value so much, which is the ward. Yeah. Obviously, as F1s, we spent most of our time on the ward. Yeah. And when you spend a whole day just um, having done ward round and then ward jobs and seeing ward patients, yeah, you don't really feel like you're making the most of your training opportunities. There's often a phrase which I've heard so many times, which is, oh, no, I'm not a trainee, I'm a ward monkey. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes it, I, I understand that feeling, but do you think that, you know, as a core trainer or even as a reg, there are good training opportunities you should make the most of on the ward? That is an excellent question. And the answer to this is yes and no. So I'll start with the obvious, like, no, it is being on the ward in perpetuity the best way to use your time. No, of course it isn't. It, you know, you can help out every once in a while, be that guy if you, if you want, but it's not the most useful thing for you developing but there are definitely things on the ward that can help and spoiler alert when you're a reg and maybe when you're a reg on call, you know, you might be doing the entire ward round at the same time you're getting, you know, pinged by people down in A&E or GP referrals or they're parked on SAU. So there'll be situations that you're faced in where that is the reality of what you're going to have to do. So the first thing I'd probably say is rather than being a passive participant, you should see if you can lead or take on part of the ward round. So don't just sit there scribing or whatever. Say to a reg, say to a consultant, you know, I operate on this guy and I've looked at the other four people in this bay. Can I lead the ward round in this bay or do the next couple of bays? That's kind of initiative and it'll get you comfortable with the idea of being leading decision-making, which is probably the the most important thing in all surgery, making the decisions. So that's one way you can be on the ward and get use or value out of it. The second thing is there'll come a point where when you're a reg and and you're kind of off the leash and you do what you want, you might say, yeah, this guy needs an ultrasound. And then it might be you that needs to go get it. So as a core trainee, you, it, it's good practice to start to learn to engage those other specialties, like, you know, getting a radiologist to get your scan approved and explain to them why it's important, why it's necessary, and not just going, oh, close the boss, I don't know to get the scan done. You know, you did a little bit of like, well, this is why we think we need it. This is what we're looking for. And the same with all those other things. So that is, in that, that is in some respects, is another value-added task, only because when you get to higher specialty training, you're going to have to do it and you're going to have to be slick at doing it because, you know, you've got, you're juggling so many other spinning plates when you're on call or when you're doing stuff that you haven't got the time to go from one person to the next person, just knocking on every radiologist door. You need to be like, yo, this is why I need this scan. This is the blood. This is the EGFR. Can you do it? Yeah. When? Cool. Bye. Next. So there is learning that can be done when you're on the ward, when you're like the ward monkey, just running around doing little bits and pieces, you just have to see that in a few years time, you're not going to be the, an extra pair of hands. You're going to be the captain of this ship. Mm, So making sure that you're able to navigate this thing is, is sort of good experience. And I guess by, as you say, discussing with other specialties and and, uh, filling out requests and things, you're demonstrating to yourself and to your seniors that you understand the decision-making and the reasons behind those decisions. Yeah. 
Yeah. I guess when, you know, as a core trainee, even you are a senior to the F1s and they do ask you for advice. And that is a skill in itself, which you kind of practice by being on the wood, giving advice, especially over the phone and being able to take information from an F1, which is sort of secondhand information from their assessment and be able to formulate a decision. Um, that is that is something that you have to learn before you become a reg. You can't go and do a full assessment of every patient for every question an F1 asks you. It's a um, difficult thing to do, I think. Yeah, agreed. And, and what you'll learn as a reg is if you haven't made yourself available to people and the person is not certain what to do, then the right kind of management might not have been followed. And what that means is, you know, as a reg, it's your, it's your job to fix that and make sure it's sorted. So you end up coming out from whatever you're doing with more work on your plate. So we talked a lot about all these different things, especially pertinent to core training. Here's the sort of golden question. Does it get easier when you become a reg? Uh, again, nothing's ever black and white. And, it doesn't, it doesn't. So the best way I can liken what special training is like is you get more of the stuff that you love, which is like theatre, and you get more of the stuff that you hate, which is admin. So you get like a double dose helping of the stuff that's great and the stuff that's not great. So what I mean by that is starting ST3 or ST whatever, and then you're like, I'm finally there. I've done it. I'm a reg. I get to do all this stuff. In a few years' time, I'm going to be a consultant. And then you'll get this list, this list, this list, this list. And then provided you take the, the, the steps, like no one's just going to give you everything to do. You still have to show the same attributes, the same sort of tenacity, the same sort of understanding, leadership from the things that we've spoken about. Otherwise, they won't trust you to do anything. They won't give you anything to do. And you'll just be one of those kind of underperforming people. It's not... Um, training is a privilege but it shouldn't be an expectation if that makes sense yeah no someone has said something similar to me before like you can't demand training you have to earn it yeah exactly that but if you're sensible you're savvy you put these things into into place you'll get all these things like you'll get operating this that you'll get scopes you'll get procedure lists you'll get half day elective lists you'll get all this stuff but then what you probably get <laughs> you'll get your boss's admin whereas when you're in core training you're kind of shielded from all this stuff so yeah it's not it's not as clear cut what i say is probably is better because most people like operating that that's why you become the surgeon is because you like operating so you will definitely get more operating but then you get all the other stuff all the other joys that come with it as well. Yeah. I suppose it's, there are similarities in core training that I can relate to. So we talked a bit about, you know, the mundane tasks on the ward, doing TTOs and things like that. I suppose that is the equivalent of a stack of endoscopy results. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of your penance for the training. Yeah, exactly. always, you're always going to have the, 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 stuff that um, no one wants to do but yeah and and it's the same when you're a reg it'll be like um i've got to go to this place can you do the ward round and you're like "Mm, yeah 
yeah, I'd be delighted. And then you've got to do the ward round and then you like it's typical, you've got you've got to do the ward round, you've got to be in theatre at half eight. So you've got to try and get a junior back, listen, we've got 30 minutes to do this, right? Because if I'm not done in 30 minutes, then I'm gonna vanish. And you and I are gonna have a really, really miserable day because then we're gonna come up for 20 minutes in between cases and we're just gonna be here till four before we even finish the bloody thing. That goes back to why being on the ward can be a useful learning experience because you just get good at motoring around people quickly. I think you've summed up some really nice advice. Um, which certainly I'll be taking away as a core trainee. And certainly probably I'll remember when I start my, my red job, um, if I get there. Is there anything else, um, you know, that you would advise in the topic of making the most out of training? Is there anything else that comes to mind that you think um, core trainees should know? Yeah, so there was two other things that I put down here, right? And um, maybe add another one. So the first thing, op notes. It's actually really, really simple. But if ever you've done a procedure, do the op note. And the reason being is it doesn't matter what operation you've done, right? If you, Even if you've done like an IND of an abscess or you've done like an aortic root replacement, the operation note is just an extension of the most basic thing. So when you get the format down, um, a, it helped consolidate your understanding of the procedure and the steps that you've taken and the measures that you've done. But B, you can then write it for any procedure that you've ever done in the rest of your life because you understand what needs to populate it and, and the, the logical format. Um, I'm not going to go into that in too much detail because there's slightly different ways of doing it. They're all broadly speaking the same, but you know, I don't want to go into the whole five-minute spiel about how you should write an up note but definitely start taking the opportunity whenever it presents itself for you. And the next most important thing is like you, there is a lot of time in theater where you're waiting for a patient to come through and it's dead time. And there are learning opportunities in there. So this one, I didn't start until later, but actually it's one of my like little, um, surgical life hacks which i'm gonna i think is has been really good for me and that is when you're in theater just sat in sat around swiveling around on the stool what you'll find is that the scrub nurses are there ready and they're going to open up the instrument trays now when you're a core trainee i like i have no idea what those instruments are so i asked the scrub nurses to go through the instrument tray with me because like I don't, I mean, now, now I know, but I was like, I don't know the difference from a Mayo's or a Mackindo's or Metzen Balms or like, for example, when I'd use a Lane's or an Alice or a Babcock. So, you know, there are all these eponymous instruments and you know, there's all these names you need to learn, but the scrub nurses are going through it again and again. They go through it once at the beginning before the patient's even on table. They'll go through it at the end while you're, closing up so just while you sat there waiting for a patient to be wheeled through go through it with them you'll learn really quickly what the instruments are called what the purpose is and what you're meant to do with them yeah no absolutely that was one of the things actually that was really new to me when i started called training like the, the names in it like i didn't know i thought it was called a retractor and then someone said langenbecks 
Yeah. <laughs> and like, surprise <laughs> for you, Jamie, there were like Langenbecks, there's Divas, Morris. Yeah, or there's, no, I just thought it was retractor, big retractor, small retractor. <laughs> there's like 16 different, <laughs> uh, even SD3, do you want a St. Mark's or do you want a Golliger and I was, or, a, or a Diva? And I was like, <laughs> the bloody hell's the difference i don't know i just want a thing for down in the pelvis yeah, yeah like yeah. oh but you can take this or you can take this i was like i don't know man just give me the thing that that exposes the pelvis why are you asking me again a thing for the pelvis so that is that was one of my really really good concentrated learning nuggets of like i've learned a lot like in five minutes and then i think the other thing is right it's the last thing i'd probably say is expectation so when you're in core training, you have to do your logbook, you have to do your, like your minimum number of procedures, right? And you have this thing like, oh, I need to do this many procedures. I need to do like 30 lap appendixes. I need to be this good. And my first boss in general surgery was an SAC representative. We touched on that in episode one. Um, so, but he's, he's a big, big deal when it comes to setting training standards and what training should learn. And I said to him, I said, Mr. X, I am done core training, but I'm not really that comfortable doing a lap appendix. And I know I'm an ST3. And he just said to me, he's like, look, I'll be honest with you. You could show me a logbook of 100 appendicectomies, right? Or 500 appendicectomies. I'm not going to let you do a lap appendix out of hours unsupervised. Absolutely not. Like, I've never met you. I've never worked with you. I'm not going to let you do it. Like, I'll let you do it, but I'm going to come in and do it, or I'm going to come in and I'm going to assist you do it until I know that you're not like a cowboy. And he said, my maximum ceiling of expectation for a brand new ST3 should be for general surgery is paint the abdomen, drape the abdomen, get the port set in, get the camera set up and get the instruments ready. I don't expect you to be able to do a lap appendix, but what I'd expect you to do is have a patient ready to do the procedure. When I walk in, I can just ask for like the graspers and da, 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 and you've got the, the diathermy set up on the, on the diathermy hook and you all that. And you've got the diathermy and the cameras, you know, set up with white balance and fog on. And you, that's literally some sort of my expectation. I don't, I, I will teach you how to do the operation. And that's it. Just that, you know, the basics of getting someone ready on a table, ready for someone who's experienced to then do the procedure and or teach you. So I think, we perhaps put these lofty expectations on ourselves a bit too much. And I know you want to get the logbook and that's fine, but to chase the logbook, just to get your foot in the door, but just you can sort of wind those expectations back a little bit. Well, I thinking that there is the possibility that you could be operating on your own out of hours in a few months, it did, but it's clear that that's not definitely. Yeah. What I will tell you is this is the one thing that I've learned and I, I'm knocking on the door of like being a final year's trainee. And if ever I'm taking any patient to theatre, like I will always call the consultant just so you know, I'm taking this patient to theatre. Yeah, it's cool. Are you happy or are you not happy? And they don't put any pressure on me to say yay or nay. I would always, always run the decision to take someone to theatre past the consultant. Uh, and that's yes. a given. So it's not that you're expected. That's it. Your SC three off you go. Not not the case at all. Yeah. So just take it easy. Just don't don't stress yourself out about it. As I said, you've given us a lot of these. Well, I like the name 
surgical life hacks. I think you could write a little book or at least like some sort of documentary or YouTube video, surgical life hack. Um, thank you for all that. That's been really useful. Um, oh, it's, oh, it's a pleasure, Jamie. I mean, I just feel like I've kind of just accrued enough bad experiences and then <laughs> out the other way. So um, I'm happy to try and shortcut or circumvent that journey for other people just sort of speeds up the learning process, really. Absolutely. I think if anyone has any questions um, that they want to put to Asad, then we'll, we'll include some sort of link and some way of making, uh, uh, directing questions to, to either of us. Or, um, yeah, I think we could always address, we could even, you know, do a little Q&A session towards the end of another episode. So like, yeah, if you've got any questions, fire them in and then, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll make some sort of link. We could be like agony ants or whatever. Yeah, yeah.